Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dalibor Rohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are joined by um, Vlad Davidson who is with the Atlantic Council and Tablet Magazine. Uh, and uh, and thrilled to have you here to give us a read of your personal experiences um, in Ukraine during this war, how you're, you've burned your passport and much more to come. Um, but um, before we get to that, um, Dalibor, would you like to frame our discussion today? Thank you, Julia. Um... I have I have Vlad's resume in or short bio from the Atlantic Council website in front of me, and and as I'm reading through it, I realize that I mean none of this information really does justice to his larger than life personality and 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 dandyism and 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 his 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 delightfully reactionary uh, affectations. I mean it's almost as if Wes Anderson. And the late Kenneth Minogue <laughs> had a baby. What a horrible uh, image! I, th- that I is. think I think uh, that baby, he or she would ha- would have some of the same idiosyncrasies as as as, as Vlad. Vlad was born in Tashkent, he uh, Uzbekistan. He lived in Moscow for for a few years as a as a as a, as a kid. He's American. He now lives in France, where he writes a lot about. Uh, Eastern Europe, the post-Soviet space. He produces documentaries. Uh, he's the founding editor of the Odessa Review, a sort of intellectual, culture-focused quarterly uh, that 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 looks at at that sort of post-Soviet space. And 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 maybe one way to to sort of get this conversation going is to is to really go back to February. Uh, so in a, in a delightful piece for the Spectator magazine, Vlad writes that he spent much of February sitting around lobbies of high-end hotels in the company of journalist friends, uh, ordering drinks on their expense expense accounts. And and he was uh, in Kiev uh, when the Russian attack started. Uh, his his delightful Ukrainian wife uh, was back in Paris, and and then he was immediately summoned to collect. Uh, the nieces and get back to France, which he didn't. Since then, he's been to Ukraine again. Uh, I think it would be just interesting to sort of hear more about that story and 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 what sort of you know the strongest moments from from really the early hours and and and, and days of the of of the war and 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 the period leading to the war were for you and and, and you know what 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 sort of memories you you will be keeping for the. For the for the many years and decades to come, that is extraordinarily generous, uh, as befitting a, a gentleman uh, of of a sort that Dalibor is. Clearly, uh, I uh, I expected nothing less. He is he is correct uh, about my uh, uh, my aesthetic uh, being in the world, my affectations, my uh, my my uh, my habitus, and my my 
world historical uh, being in the world. He's correct about all these things. I am very happy to be here. I'm very, very pleased to be able to discuss uh, what, uh, what, what I've been through and what I've seen. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with the fact that I've been a Russia, Ukraine, Belarus guy for about 10 years. I've been covering the story for a very long time, and I'm deeply immersed in the story. I'm an Eastern European, 10,000% an Eastern European, even though I was born in Central Asia and reared in America. I grew up in the diaspora, and I grew up very much in a Russian-speaking household and in a Russian-speaking diasporic context. And unlike my sister and my cousins who became thoroughly American, I somehow retained many of my Eastern European weirdo affiliations if not affectation so <laughs> uh, uh, like a salmon returning to the waters i came back to ukraine and belarus where i spawned where my ancestors were spawned in order to uh, continue uh, working on the region and i i'm very deeply embedded uh, psychologically in the region i i consider these to be my lands this is this is my culture this is my war these are my people uh, uh you know i'm a reporter uh, but I, I very much have skin in the game. So uh, I've written pieces where I talk about how difficult it is to be uh, a reporter, an analyst, a participant, and also in some ways a victim at the same time. I, not, not to make it look like I, I, I have any sense of grievance, but I, I had to get my friends and my relatives out. And actually that took away from my experience of reporting because I had to take time out of my life in order to literally get family members out of the country. So can you tell us a little bit about that path of yours, um, how um, how you perceived the early days of war um, in Kiev as you were drinking with journalists um, and um, your travels because we understand that you went back um, and um, even during the war in the early days, traveled um, around the country. So looking back now, what is it, one, two months um, since you've been last? Um, how, uh, no, two, two, how... three weeks, two, three weeks. I, I've been in and out, I've been in and out, uh, just so you know, I've been, I haven't been in a couple of weeks, but I've been in and out. I've gone in and out four times. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, mm -hmm. so if you are to look back on these four times um, over the last three months, um, could you describe that in a nutshell? Is it was it any different towards um, towards later, uh, more recently, compared to the early days in terms of what people were thinking, the fear, the insecurity? Um, how um, how do you look back on these months? I, as Dalibor said, had spent the weeks leading up to the war waiting for it. It was obvious it was going to happen, and I knew it was going to happen. I I really didn't think that they would go in that stupidly into Kiev and try to throw away their best elite forces in very silly and objectively improbable sorties and soirees around Gostomel Airport. I just didn't think that they would they would be that incompetent. So I didn't really and in fact the Ukrainian intelligence services and the and the Ministry of Defense didn't didn't predict that they would go in like that because it was a very silly thing to have done uh, in terms of strategy and, and tactics. So no, no one predicted that the Russians' intelligence was so bad that they believed their own lies and that they would be as incompetent as they wound up being in the early stages of the war. Very difficult to 
measure the exact level of stupidity and cupidity of your opponent. So, you know, almost no one got that right. I didn't actually think that the war would start in Kiev. And I was prepared to sit out the war in Kiev and make uh, and make trips to other places in order to report. I didn't really think that I'd be surrounded. And because I had a Russian passport, which I inherited from my father, I was told on the day that it was happening that there would be paratroopers in Kiev and that the place that I was living in, I was living in a safe house, which had been lent to me by a wealthy friend, a just a villa with guys. It <laughs> sounds like a great safe house. <laughs> just a safe house, kind yeah. Of place that you sit out. Of <laughs> yeah. That was okay. Is it available for rent? It's a very nice safe house. It was a safe. It was a safe house. Yeah. I was sitting in a safe house. I was gonna w- report from the safe house. It turned out that the safe house was in the part of Kiev, which was going to be surrounded and taken by the Russians. And because I'm a Russian citizen and the, and the Atlantic Council, my family does, and my involvement in Russian politics and anti-Putin politics, I was told there's a 10,000% chance that if you hit a filtration camp, we will never see you alive. In fact, uh, my, my friend Yaroslav Trofimov, who's the Wall Street Journal's foreign policy correspondent, called me at 9 o'clock that evening and he said, you have to leave. I said, why? He says, you're not going to survive a filtration camp. I don't know anyone else with a Russian passport who's staying. You have to be an idiot. Basically, he, he's a very elegant man. He didn't use the word you have to be an idiot, but that's what he meant. And other people called me throughout the day saying, look, you're not going to survive a filtration camp. You, no one thinks you're a coward. No one thinks you're a bad journalist. Everyone knows how serious you are. Everyone knows where you've been. Everyone knows what you did during the Belarus revolution. Everyone knows that you've been to the front. But this is different. And your press credentials at this point don't mean anything. If if they check your ID papers, you are dead. And that means you can't really report from the Russian side of things. So just report from uh, from behind the lines. So I said, okay. So I went around the towns as they were falling. And I was reporting as uh, as the towns around Belarus were, were being taken. I went up to the Belarus border. I reported from mm. there. A, f- a friend in British intelligence and in, in, in another friend in, in the British Ministry of Defense told me that <laughs> the Brits thought that the Belarus army was supposed to come in right where I was, <laughs> operating about 50 kilometers from the Belarus border. And they told me, you're in the wrong location again. So I kept <laughs> I kept moving around. I went, Remind I me went not to, to go uh, war reporting with you. <laughs> <laughs> Went to Rovne, went to Ternopil, went to Cherno- Chernovtsi, where my ancestors are from, sat in Chernovitz for an, a week. My wife called me and she said, I have to get my uh, my nieces and my cousin and my uh, uh, my uh, brother's sister out of Odessa. They are n- people who've never really traveled anywhere. In fact, the little girls didn't have passports. They only had ID papers. And the grandmother only had like a Soviet era uh, internal documents. So she'd never really, you know, she's one of a class of people, the, the mother-in-law, the grandmother, who was declassed by the collapse of the Soviet Union. There are all these people who used to fly around when the Soviet Union made uh, flying democratic, but they haven't been on a plane in 30 years or 32 years. So she didn't have the, the habit of, of going to the airport. And the little girls had never been out of a country. And the mom 
and the cousins they just only traveled by train and there were no men around they'd never they really didn't know what was going to happen on the border you know it's difficult getting out of a war zone if you don't have those habits of traveling not to be a snob uh, and these are middle class people they're computer programmers they're not you know farmers uh, or they're not they're not farmers they have the money for train tickets and plane tickets they just don't have the habits of going to the airport in fact i when i took them uh, a little uh, a little tirade when i took them to the french embassy in romania and bucharest in order to get them paperwork it was fascinating i took them to the french consulate and the the uh, french embassy was fussing around us because my wife and i have good connections and and the uh, the consul there was a friend of ours who had served uh, in uh, in Kiev and Odessa, so they were taking extremely good care of us because we were a known quantity and important people called, asking for, for them to expedite the paperwork. And my my relatives, mm. they were standing there, staring at the um, at the metal detector, at the consulate entrance, and the consul says, "Are your relatives okay?" I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, they just never seen a metal detector before. <laughs> it's the first time they've never been to the airport." So. So I had to take them out to France. I got them out to France. Oh. I took a week off, came to America, did some fundraising for the Ukrainians, came back to Poland, was there for the big Biden speech, crossed back into Ukraine. I was actually with, with uh, Sean Penn. Uh, this is well known. I, 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 was, I was his fixer and translator. <laughs> I, I'm not allowed to say what it is that we were doing or who we were talking to, but if you Google around a little bit, we were... Uh, running around Lviv. I came back a week later to Poland. I r- reported on the uh, on the uh, refugee crisis. Came back to France and then I did a couple of more trips to Odessa through Moldova. So I, I've been in and out through every border, the Hungarian, the Romanian, uh, the Polish, and the Moldovan. I, <laughs> I know every border crossing in and out now. And my friend David Petrikarakus and I, a wonderful friend, a wonderful colleague, and I spent weeks traveling around Odessa. He just put out a piece today, in fact, about me and how funny I am uh, on, on Herd. You should read <laughs> that. Uh, it's my origin stories in it. Um, it's a really fun piece. And we went to Rubezhne, we went to Dnipro, we went to uh, Nikolaev, we went to uh, out to the front. We came back to Odessa, and then I had to take my father-in-law out who lives next to the airport, once they started bombing the airport, he said, it's time to go. I said, okay. And I took him to France. So that's, that's my story. Um, I, I the uh, unheard story was at least up online last night. So I had a, uh, it's a great read. I I commended to our listeners as uh, our second accommodation. Thank you. Um, But it did raise a couple of, points that I think you might be uniquely able to address. I mean, and I think it would be helpful to clarify for our audience. Uh, alas, many, especially <laughs> people who believe that they're well-educated in this country, sort of believe that, I mean, there's still kind of a residual uh, difficulty in distinction distinguishing between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, sure. And especially so when it comes to Odessa, which is such a storied city um, uh, of the Russian world. Right. The Ruski Mir. Um, uh, yeah. And there, I think there were sort of lines in the unheard piece about pulling down Pushkin statues, which uh, 
it would be understandable, perhaps both lamentable and understandable at the same time. But if you could sort of give us your take on the divergence uh, between the two cultures and particularly that that is obviously being exacerbated by the current conflict, um, I think that would be a useful thing for Americans to try to better grasp. Yeah. So Russia and Ukraine are two separate states. Uh, they are. Wait a minute. Can we go over this one more time? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh... Go on. <laughs> All right. Fast forward. Fast forward. Okay. Uh, two minutes. So the the cultures are commingled, and the diasporas are commingled, and the ethnicities are commingled, and to, to a large extent, who's who ethnically doesn't matter, and uh, they are Slavs both of them, and they, they share a history of the church, although many Ukrainians are of the Greco-Catholic church as opposed to the Orthodox church. So the traditional, let's say, Northern Irish, Northern Ireland divisions between who is a Ukrainian and who's a Russian and who's an Eastern Ukrainian are hard to map onto ethno-religious linguistic divides. This is very much a political identity, a cultural identity. Donnelly's no no Protestant when we see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you go, you go to uh, Northern Ireland and you say, who's Catholic, who's Ireland? They always know you and being an outsider, I have no idea how they can tell. And the flags are out in every village. Well, the flags. Yeah. Okay, fine. But it's also, you know, it's not like Russians or Ukrainians are physically different. They're all intermarried. Um, there's no such thing as a purity of of culture or linguistic identification. The language stuff is completely a, a, a non-existing thing. It has been for a long time. The West-East divide does not map onto language, and anyone who says that it does really doesn't know anything. So it's really about regional identity, and it's really about the future and the past. Mm. So Ukraine is a political nation. It's full of all sorts of different people and it has 15 different kinds of churches in it, uh, I- including the, the, the two heads of the uh, Muslim faith. It has Crimean Tatar Muslims and it has normal Muslims. It has uh, huge Jewish communities and it has many, many, many Christian denominations ranging from uh, the Greco-Catholic to the Catholic to the Protestant to the uh, numerous uh, schisms within the Orthodox Church to the Armenian Church to Anabaptists to every kind of uh, Protestant uh, faith that you can think of has uh, Jews for Jesus. It has uh, has um, has everybody you can think of. It's a it's a very 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 multiracial multi ethnic polity with all sorts of different people and who's who does not map on yet again onto linguistic or ethnic, or religious, or regional identification, more or less, although there are some of that. This isn't so much a civil war, and anyone who says a civil war is downplaying the Russian invasion, as it is a late-stage division of political nations as a late-stage outcome of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the way the Ottoman Empire kept dissolving into the late 40s the Soviet Union is still dissolving and new political nations are being born as decommunization and de-Russification and, and 
other sorts of political processes are taking place long after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It took 25 years for those processes to start, or 19 years, however you count to which Maidan. But they began now. The Russians are going in the opposite direction as they want to have a authoritarian kleptocratic state. They've cobbled together a nostalgia memory politics, looking back towards the Soviet Union, minus the economics and the Brotherhood of Man. And the Ukrainians are basically looking forward to a national future, which could be in the European Union, it could not be in the European Union. But the important thing is those decisions were never taken and those political processes, those cultural processes never took place for many, many years. And the Ukrainians are starting to think in 2014, after the Maidan revolution of dignity, what is it this country is going to look like? What is the future? What is the culture independent of a Russian culture? What are the films that we're going to be making independent of Russian films? What is a Ukrainian literature independent of Russian literature? What is a Russophone Ukrainian literature independent of Russian literature? What does it mean to be a patriot Russian speaking of the Ukrainian state, independent of Russian civilization. And with the war, the way it was started on February 24, we're basically in a kind of Thomas Mann situation where uh, German civilization in 1941 wasn't in Berlin. It was in California. It was in Switzerland. It was in the south of France. It was in New York City. It was in London. So you understand what I'm trying to say, right? You know, as, as people are asking themselves these questions of, you know, like what does a distinctly Ukrainian culture and nationhood look like? Uh, there probably isn't a better city to be asking those questions than, than Odessa with, yeah. you know, its ethnic mix, with its cultural and historic legacies. So, you, you know, you've been back to Odessa since the beginning of the invasion. So, you know, the fortified city, uh, with, you know, tank barriers and barbed wire across those 19th century boulevards. Yeah, uh, it was utterly amazing and, and horrible to say that. But that they took the whole down, by the way. Hmm? I mean, I, I wonder if you could expand a little on, on sort of, you know, the, the place that Odessa has in, you know, your own cultural imagination i mean you know made the conscious decision to name your magazine of ideas odessa review uh you've been part of the uh, film festival in odessa uh nurturing a sort of distinctly ukrainian uh film and documentary making industry uh so, so so if you could maybe tell us a little bit about you know like what 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 role the city plays now, in your imagination, in, in Ukrainian cultural life, you all know it's support and it is being blockaded, blockaded by the by 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 by, by the yes. Russians. Uh, but 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 it just just sort of, if you could just expand a little on its on its particularly cultural and political significance. So it is extraordinarily significant for the cultural imagination for both the uh world and the russians a bit less so for the ukrainians uh, especially the ukrainian diaspora has no idea what to make of it because it's a russian-speaking town and it just um it has nothing to do with 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 their cultural background it's an important city for the ukrainians it's the main port it became the main port of the ukrainian navy after sevastopol was stolen from the uh ukrainian state by the annexation of crimea in 2014 and it is the main export 
port now for grain for the Ukrainian state. It's being blockaded now. It is uh, useless as a port at this time. And that fact may very well lead to a worldwide famine and uh, uh, millions of Africans and Arabs moving into, uh, into the West, uh, uh, making the 2014-15 a political crisis in in Europe uh, uh, look like a child's walk, child's a child's play. So uh, I I hope uh, there is no famine because of the Russians, and I hope that lots of people uh, in in their countries stay where they live and uh, are not forced to move in order to find bread. So it, it, that's just uh, the security ramifications of a city. Culturally, it's a melting pot which has very much a distinctive and a very personal sense of itself, which keeps an aloof uh, process from uh, uh, kind of aloof distance from the rest of the country. I wrote my first book about it called From Odessa with Love. And uh, I, I learned reporting it that the intelligence services of Ukraine until recently didn't fully control it. The Odessa SBU was very much focused on itself and didn't always respond to the requests and even demands of the authorities back in Kiev, which is very much historically the way that Odessa has been run. It's just an independent city state with Hong Kong type uh, anti-tax, free tax regime. Uh, it's the center of a lot of smuggling and a lot of other sorts of criminality, which is why it's so charming and so interesting. But now, with the war, the independent identity that it's always had and the pro-Russian leanings of between 20 to 40 percent of a population until now, let's be honest, a lot of that is being changed very quickly as Russians were just bombing random Odessites, you know? And the fact that they were bombing in neighborhoods which were outside of a city center, I mean, a lot of those people, those poor people who were killed by the, by the random bombing in Tairova, they don't live in the nice parts of a city center with a cobblestone streets and the nice Italianite Venetian architecture from the 19th century. They live in Soviet boxes in the outer parts of town where the working class or normal normie people live. And so the fact that the Russians hit those parts of town with their cruise missiles, that did nothing to make those people want uh, the Russian spring to come any faster. It's changing is what I'm trying to say. Okay. If I could ask a quick sort of related question. You had just a wonderful piece um, the other day uh, reporting from the Cannes Film Festival about uh, uh, Ukrainian documentaries being shown there. Oh, thank you. Um, well, it, it made me both uh, want, want to avoid uh, thinking that they were great you know, there would be great but terrible films to watch. Um, you know, yes. horrible in their content, uh, but compelling in their narratives. Um, but I also, you, you had a few sort of side comments about the response of the French audience. Uh, I think we will call on you as also a resident of Paris to answer yes. yet another conundrum like what the heck's going on with the french <laughs> in regard to this, yeah this i don't know war. That, that one uh... yeah so i i'm just that's, that is a uh, a 
a softball question meant to draw draw you out on any one of those uh, aspects. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I just I, I just returned from Cannes, which I cover every year. And my my wife is a filmmaking producer, and she's part of Ukrainian nascent Ukrainian film industry. Her name is Regina Marinovska Davidson, and she makes films. And so we're deeply embedded in the Ukrainian film industry, and which is, by the way, tiny. It's like 100 people. They all know each other. And that includes the producers and the cameraman and the actors. And it's just a tiny film industry for 40 million people or 35 million people, whatever it is now. And my wife and I went to Khan this year. And every year in Khan, there's a huge scandal. Mm-hmm. Usually it's Me Too. Usually it's about women's rights or about feminism or about political correctness. Last year, it was about COVID. This year, the big political scandal was Ukraine. This was the formatting scandal, which structured the rest of the um, events of the festival in the sociological parlance, the structuring, structuring, the big idea, the grand narrative. So the, the big thing this year was the Ukrainians. And of course, the Cannes Film Festival discourages like the Olympics, national politics and nationalist politics, but they couldn't avoid a war in Europe and they didn't deal with it exactly elegantly they, are, they, they allowed a, a Russian filmmaker named Serebrikov to have a film in the, in the uh, competition. And he used his press conference to defend Abramovich against sanctions, which is just weird. You're a Chelsea a weird supporter. Thing. What are you going to say? <laughs> it's just weird, you know. <laughs> in the middle of a war, I just want to take my two minutes at my press conference in the Pele on the Quisette to say that the worst thing about this war is the sanctions against Mr. Abramovich. That's very important. <laughs> so there was that, and there were, there were naked young women running around on the red carpet with their breasts out, um, uh, fighting for Ukrainian uh, women's rights. There was a... Was it the Femin group? Uh, it was a woman associated with the Femin, yeah. I mean, it's it's already not a, a, a new thing, but it was a Femin-associated young lady with a Femin toolkit of her breasts out with the Ukrainian flag painted on her torso. There was a posthumous documentary shown by the Lithuanian filmmaker. Uh, he, has, he has a remarkably beautiful Lithuanian name, Vedrybaches. I'm sure that's not right. He, uh, I knew him fairly well before he was killed on April 2nd by the Russians in Mariupol. He made a film called Mariupol 1, which is a great documentary. And his posthumously barely edited together uh, stock footage was screened as a documentary in Cannes. It was edited in 30 days before the start of a festival, in, in between 30 days of his death and the start of a festival by his fiancée. And uh, the film is not great because the, the film is just not finished. It's an important document, but the everyone knows that it's not to be judged as a, as a finished product of the war. But it, it is a document of the war that was shown at Cannes. And also there was a, a film called uh, Butterfly Vision, which was very important and very interesting by friends of mine. It was uh, uh, it directed by Maxim Nakanechny, the uh, really, really interesting young Ukrainian filmmaker. And that was a very serious attempt to deal with the outcomes of this conflict using film. And it was a very, very probably the first serious Ukrainian f- docu drama, war fiction film, whatever you want to call it. 
and the French people were crying watching it sitting next to me. So it, it, it was a remarkable time to be at Cannes. And the Ukrainians made the French people at the festival who run it very uncomfortable with our flags. And, uh, you know, go read my piece in Tablet if you want to know more. Um, before we wrap up, I want to go back for a second to something that you were talking about and I'd love to hear more about, and that is national identity. It's something that I guess everybody's asking um, or trying to understand when it comes to this differentiation that Giselle was pointing to between um, Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, from what you're describing to me, uh, it, it reminds me the, the way you're talking about national identity is um, what um, people have looking at national identity over the last few decades have um, differentiated between the classical ethnic national identity predominant in Eastern Europe, very bad when it comes to wars and conflicts, and the political identity invented by the French. Now the ultimate expression of that, I guess, is the United States of America. And... Civic, civic, yeah. civic nationalism. Yeah, exactly. That, right? yeah. Um, and and to me, that is what is taking shape in uh, in Ukraine. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to draw the parallel to um, something that you just mentioned, and that is Crimea, um, because you mentioned Odessa not as important to national identity, yes. but. Crimea is something that the Ukrainians, yes. I uh, to yeah. be honest, it's not. The Ukrainians don't always know how to think yeah. about it. To be honest, but I'm wondering yes. how they and how you think about um, Crimea, because you know Putin has been doing everything in his power to label it as a done deal, as um, annexed territory. Now, of course, it's connected to the food crisis. Um, now, I can plug in the article that I've published today on. Um, why it is important to return Crimea. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll plug it into along with the unheard. But I'm wondering, basically, how how do you see among Ukrainians and for yourself, Crimea, Sevastopol, particularly as being associated with national identity of Ukraine um, as opposed to Russia and how Ukrainians are thinking about that as the war is dragging on? Well, look, uh, clearly Crimea is uh, internationally acknowledged, legitimate Ukrainian territory. Ukraine controls or should control the narrative about it, and, and Crimea is Ukrainian. Obviously, it's not going to be easy to get it back. The Russians have fortified it and put nuclear missiles there and uh, changed the composition of a, the demographics of the populations, mm. what imperial states do. A lot of people were deported. A lot of people were imported. The Crimean Tatars, who were the bedrock of the resistance, were obviously uh, the most motivated to resist. Uh, they've been they've been prosecuted and persecuted and and driven out, and their young men sent to the Russian army and other places. So obviously, it's a much more difficult situation than Odessa, which is not under the control of uh, the Russians. And I, I do hope that the Ukrainian state gets Crimea back, but it'll be difficult. And it would probably require the collapse uh, or the dissolution of the Russian imperial state for that to happen. And uh, already having burned my Russian passport live on television with uh, Estonian President Tumas Ilves holding the the, uh, the Russian passport, I uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say this. Uh, you know, they've caught a lot of bad karma, and it wouldn't be a bad thing for everybody if 
if the uh, Russian uh, state became a bit smaller and stopped oppressing. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I just committed another major crime, according to Russian legislation, calling for the collapse, you know, collapse of a territorial uh, continuity of uh, the Russian Federation. I have uh, no problem with with parts. Yeah, I don't want people to die. I don't want chaos. But if if the Russian Empire, the Russian Federation dissolved, dissolved is the right and word. The Ukrainians got <laughs> dissolved, yes, yeah. uh, disintegrated, and, and the Ukrainians got Crimea back. That would be yeah. A good thing. I think we're all here rooting for the dissolution of the Russian Federation for for the better. I mean. Look, look, I mean, things didn't have to happen the way they did. Russia didn't have to develop the way it did. But uh, things were um, uh, things were uh, they developed that way because of, you know, path dependence and because of the uh, uh, in the authorities. And, you know, we're not going to we're not going to go back to the 90s about to talk about why things ended up the way they did. But basically, Russia has decades a very difficult soul searching and itself doing a process of, of a quote unquote denazification kind that it's, it's uh, threatening to the Ukrainians on itself. The, uh, the Russians would need to deal with their own deep insecurities and internal problems in order to become a liberal democracy, the way that the the Japanese did after the war, uh, the way that the, the Germans did after the war, that's a, that's a serious process that the society needs to to engage in, not dissimilar from from mass psychoanalysis. But everyone knows that you can't get someone to go to a shrink if they don't want to. People have to want to make differences for their own mental health and well being. This so the Russian population also needs to reject Putinism and reject the militarization of the society and reject their kind of unseemly brew of nostalgia for the Soviet Union and Russian greatness and Russian imperialism. And they, they would have to really engage in a lot of very difficult, difficult soul searching and psychoanalytical processes in order to become healthy. And they're not there yet. Maybe losing the war will make them think about it. Maybe not. Yeah. I was going to say that prior to dissolution usually comes a little bit of uh, battering and smashing. Um, it's difficult for imperially minded people to uh, self correct. Sure. Yeah. Back back in the eighties, a friend of mine had a bumper sticker that said, "I'd rather be smashing Soviet imperialism." And there's there's a spirit there that perhaps the Ukrainians can uh, reinstill uh, in the West more broadly. But that's probably a topic, yeah. probably a topic for another another show, which. I hope we'll do very yeah. soon. Julia, I, uh, I yield back the balance of my time, as we used to say in Congress. Vlad Davidson, many thanks for joining us. This has been a very interesting and rich conversation, and we hope to um, have you join again soon. From Thank me, you. Julia Joja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and our dear departed Dalibor Rohach who had, a, had an appointment to run to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Let's, let's do this again soon. Sounds like a plan.
Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.